Oh, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Genesis 37. That's where we're going to be at today. And you know, I think it was about the uh, middle of November when Aaron asked me if I wouldn't be willing to maybe do a series throughout uh, the month of January here. And I got to admit, when he first asked me, it was something I was excited about. It's also, I think this is a little bit more scary getting up here to start a series than it is to just do one single message. I think it's because I know I gotta, I gotta build on it. And I gotta, think, and I think in my own mind, I gotta keep wowing you each time I come out. It's gotta be better than the time before. But that's, but that's just me. So I'm still a little bit scared. But uh, so I started thinking about topics. What might I want to do? Right? Should I want to do a topical thing? Do I want to do a bibliographical thing? What do I want to talk about over a period of four to five weeks? I ended up Joseph was the first thing that popped into my mind, doing a series on Joseph. So I prayed about it for a few weeks, and I kept feeling stronger and stronger about doing a series about Joseph. So I started digging deeper into the scripture, you know, to see is this really what I should do. And I got kind of three main thoughts, three main reasons why I thought doing a study on Joseph would be good. First, Joseph, he, you know, he's fourth in the patriarchal line of the people of, uh, of Israel, right? But however, he doesn't get mentioned in the same way a lot as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, you don't hear people in the New Testament saying, you know, I am the father, the God of Moses, God of our fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? They always kind of stop there at Jacob. When we talk about the tribes of Israel, right, you don't hear anything about the, the tribe of Joseph. His name just kind of forgotten, right? Because if you recall back, he was blessed doubly, and he got a double portion when it came there, but they are named after his sons, after Ephraim and Manasseh, right? So you don't really hear the name of Joseph in the New Testament. He kind of gets kind of thrown aside maybe a little bit, kind of forgotten, definitely not forgotten, but in the New Testament, the name of Joseph, he's only mentioned four times in all the New Testament. Compare that to the approximately 74 mentions of Abraham or the, the 84 mentions of Moses. You can see that one of our patriarchs, a very important person in the Bible, because while you may not mention that much in the New Testament, he's very, very important to the development of the Israeli people. He's actually, he covers 13 chapters of Genesis, the story of Joseph does. His story explains how the Israeli people ended up in Egypt in the first place, thus fulfilling the prophecy that was given to Abram in Genesis 15, where God said unto Abram, Know of surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. So if we didn't have Joseph, we wouldn't have people ended up in Egypt, and we could have never had an exodus, which in my opinion is probably the greatest miracle God's ever performed on this earth, and will be the greatest until the day that he calls us all home and he raptures us all up. Right? But if we didn't have Joseph, the people would have never formed in Egypt. The nation never would have gathered. There never could have been an exodus, never could have brought glory to God. It was all part of God's glorious plan. So I just think, just in general, I think everybody should get to know Joseph just a little bit better. Right? Second thing I noticed when I started looking deep into Joseph's life is that we can definitely see a foreshadowing of Jesus in his life. When reading through the story of Joseph, it's impossible in my mind to not see Christ if you are a believer today. There's so many similarities in there, such as being the, the beloved son, being turned on against by the brethren, rising to glory after rejection, salvation of family in the entire world during the years of famine. You know, in fact, one of the other kind of 
similarities is that there's no records I could find when reading the story of Joseph where Joseph ever sinned. The Bible makes no mention of it. Now, does that mean I think he's sinless? No, don't take that away from this. I'm not saying Joseph was a sinless person. I wouldn't even say he's the greatest human person if we're going by biblical standards because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Barely I say unto you, among them of born of women, there are none risen greater than John the Baptist. So while Joseph was a, a good picture of Christ, he wasn't sinless, he wasn't perfect. But you know, it's been said that he's a, a type of Christ. You know, I know there's only one Christ, but, but jo- the Joseph we're told about, he definitely resembles Christ. And there's much that can be learned by Jesus. Much we can learn, because the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, that's its purpose, is to point us to Jesus Christ. And here in the very first book, and when we get to the end of Genesis, we kind of see a visual image of Christ is given to us as kind of a foreshadowing and prophecy. And the final thing I noticed that maybe really want to talk about Joseph is that he led, a, he led a life that had many peaks and valleys, but he always managed to become successful whatever he want. We are told over and over again as because God made him that way. God was with him. In fact, Genesis 39.3, And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hands. Genesis 39.23, The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. In Genesis 41, And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this man whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. So here again, because Joseph, God was with Joseph. God is blessing Joseph. He's getting some rewards. After that, Satan, you know, it goes on to show how Joseph is successful. And he stores food in the time of famine, right? So that way, or in the time of plenty. So when the time of famine comes, he's not only to save the people of Egypt, the people of the entire world he has food through. God is truly blessing him, everything he does. However, it's not just that God is blessing him. It's, it's what we don't read when we're reading the story about Joseph. We're not directly told what Joseph does. Right? We're not told that Joseph went into his prayer closet and got down on his knees and begged God to, be, to fill him with the Spirit. Right? We aren't shown how Joseph went and sought after God. But we're told constantly that God was with him, so we know Joseph must have been doing something right. Right? We're not told that Joseph did that, or he did this, and that it pleased the Lord and it caused the Spirit to come on upon him. No, God's Spirit was always upon Joseph. You know, God was always guiding the steps in the work of Joseph. So no matter what type of situation he was in, God was with him. And I would say that's the main theme of the whole story of Joseph, is that we're going to find out that God was with him in everything he does, right? And that's actually the second part of this series. That's what we're going to call it, is God was with him when we start talking about the second stage of his life. But, but as, just for introduction purposes, though, we'll see that Joseph was successful in betrayal and transition and persecution and redemption, all because God was with him or near to him. So in essence, what we're seeing, we're not seeing directly the story of Joseph. We're seeing uh, the story of what God can do in a person's life when he gives and totally submits over to God and does the will of God and lets, them, lets God work through that person, the kind of glory that we can bring to God and the kind of miraculous thing that can happen when we surrender to the, surrender to the Spirit and constantly be filled with it and have it coming through us. So that is how the series came about, from the pit to the palace. And actually, i got to give Aaron some praise here for the, the wonderful graphic there. I'm not that great at computers, but he helped me find the title and the graphic for that. So I'm pretty, I like that an awful lot. 
And my plan is to get five lessons from my life of Joseph. Each week we're going to move a little further through his life and the progression of his life in a chronological order. And my goal kind of each week of this series is going to be threefold, right? First, I want you just to get to know a little bit more about Joseph, just in general, just a little bit of education, right? Each week, I want you to see a little bit about how Joseph foreshadows Jesus, how Joseph is a picture of Christ and how the Bible is always pointing us towards Christ. And the third thing I hope is that you can take a practical lesson, something you can apply in your life out of each one of these, because this is, this is no way going to be a comprehensive study on the life of Joseph. There's, there's so much more that can be taught in the 13 chapters that covers the life that I'm not going to get through everything in five weeks. It's going to be more of a, a big picture look covering some of the major overarching truths woven throughout his story. We're going to start our, our study here in chapter 37. That's kind of where Joseph gets started, although I believe it was in Genesis maybe 30 where he was born, born a little bit before that. But the story really picks up in Genesis 37, and we're just going to read verses 23 through 27 to start with, and then we're going to get into his story. Well, Genesis 37, verse 23, the Bible reads, And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let him sell us to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the story of Joseph. I just pray that you guide me, fill me with your spirit, have me say what you want me to say, that it may be edifying and helpful to someone listening today. Ask all this in Jesus' name. So, we just, we just kind of read here, right, how the story ends here in this chapter, in verse 37, right? Here the brothers of Joseph has taken him and they've thrown him into a pit, right? He has been forsaken. He's been left behind. I'm calling it forsaken by family. That's what happens to Joseph here in chapter 37, right? And they were just threw him into the pit. They were content to sell him into slavery. But if you're like me and someone started a story at this point, you'd be like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. What? How'd that happen? How did we get to that point, right? How did we get here? You know, I was... I'm thinking the same thing, right, when I, was read, when I read this myself. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where, tw- where ten brothers were so angry, were so upset, said so much malice in their heart that they conspired to leave one of their own blood in a pit to die or eventually sold into slavery? So I think this is better to be explained if we go back a little bit then, right? Go back and work our way back up to this point in the story. If we want to understand what is happening, it's kind of vital to know how we got to this point we're going to look at the family history of Joseph, right? What kind of led up to this, the kind of traits that they had. We're going to look at the current family attitudes that they had towards him, and then that finally led to the current action that was taken against him. So first let's look through Joseph's family history real quick, right? Go back. His great-grandparents were Abraham and Sarah, right? They are the ones that received the initial calling from the Lord in Genesis 12, When the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, 
and I will bless all them that bless thee and curse him that curse thee, and in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God has chosen Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, to be the one to make the nations of. He had a wife named Sarah. Sarah was a barren lady, right? But Abraham was promised a kid. Abraham and Sarah got impatient waiting for this kid, right? So what happened there? Sarah gave her headmaiden Hagar over to Abraham, and Abraham had his first child born, Ishmael. Fourteen years later, God opened up Sarah's womb, and she bore Abraham a son whom they named Isaac. If you recall the story, remember there was a bunch of drama going on this time between between Sarah and Hagar, and Sarah didn't want Ishmael around, and she convinced Abraham to get him to leave, and Ishmael was cast away from the family, although he was blessed and told that his seed would become a great nation too. Later on, God tested Abraham by telling him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, only to stop it in the last minute. This cemented the covenant that God made with Abraham and ensured that his blessings were going to be poured out onto him. Shortly later, Sarah passed away. Abraham then had to choose a wife for his son Isaac. And it was important to Abraham that he take a wife, not of the Canaanites in whom they dwelled, but rather he should take a wife from his own family. So he sent a servant back to his family where the servant found Rebekah, who was the sister of Laban of the house of Abraham's brother. She was brought back to Isaac, and they were married. So that's our first generation there, right, where Joseph was coming from, from his great-grandparents. Then you have his grandparents, Isaac and Rebekah, that we were just started talking about. They were married at the age of 40, right? And they had kind of a similar problem, a problem that kind of seems to run in this family here, right? In Genesis 25, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So again, we see another woman that was, that was hard to bear children in her young age, right? They prayed to the Lord, and eventually as she got older, her womb was opened. The Bible tells us in verse 26 that she was give birth to twins, and Isaac was 60 years old when that happened. So 20 years that they had to pray and wait for this child to be born. But it wasn't just one child. There were two children in the womb of Rebecca at this time, so much that she had to seek out the guidance of the Lord to figure out what was going on. And the Lord gave her some prophecy in Genesis 25, saying unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. This was told to her before she gave birth to her twins. The firstborn came out all hairy and red-colored, They named him Esau for that. The second born came out holding the hill of the first, and he was named Jacob, which in the language means to follow or heal. We're also going to see it could also mean deceiver or supplanter, which is going to fit Jacob perfectly as the story moves on, right? Esau, the red-headed, hairy one, he he was an outdoorsman, right? He was a hunter. He liked to work the fields. Whereas Jacob, he was a plain man. He liked to live in tents. Isaac, Isaac loved Esau, though. He was his favorite, right? But Rebekah, Rebekah had great love for Jacob. And this turns out making up for some, some competition in the life of these two youngsters. 
Imagine they're having one parent think one way about you. One parent has one, parent, one favorite. The other parent has the other favorite, right? So when they were young kids, Jacob earned his name as being a deceiver or being a supplanter when he bought the birthright of Esau. Bought it for, for some red lentil soup. Esau didn't care much about it at the time. He was just hungry. He sold his birthright straight away. And as Isaac was getting older, and Jacob being, Jacob being the, uh, the favorite of Rebekah, Rebekah helped him steal away the blessing from his older son. Right? Yeah, my names are getting so many names. They're starting to jump up in my head here. But Isaac wanted to put a blessing on to Esau, his oldest son. So I told him to go out and prepare him some venison, go out hunting and prepare him the meat that he likes. But while he was out, Rebecca worked with Jacob to steal that blessing, put some fur on his hands, made him smell like his brother, made up some stew like his brother made, and had him take it into his father, so he got the blessings. And boy, and that just caused some more family problems right there. That made Esau very, very angry. Angry enough that not only is now did uh, his younger brother have his birthright, he also had the blessing from his father. He wanted to kill Jacob at this point in time. So under the conviction of Rebekah, Isaac sent Jacob away, sent him away to find a wife. So he wouldn't find a wife in the land either. They sent him back to the family of his mother's brother, Laban, partly to get away from Esau, because Esau's rage, and partly to find him a wife. And that would get to Joseph's parents, which would be Jacob and Rachel. So Jacob left, and he went to Laban, his mother's brother, and when he immediately there, he found Rachel. And he loved her. Genesis 29 reads, And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go unto her. So he went out there, and as soon as he got out to the land, he saw Rebecca, or Rachel. And he wanted Rachel as his wife. So he talked to Laban and volunteered to work seven years. And that didn't bother him a bit, because he wasn't getting what he wanted after it, right? But Laban, Laban was an old trickster too, just as Jacob had deceived and, and tricked his brother Esau. He kind of ran into his match. You know, less than we can learn here, right? When we're out being a trickster, there's always someone out there that's going to turn it right or right back around on us. But Laban tricked Jacob, and instead of sending Rachel into him, he sent his older daughter Leah. So now Jacob was married to Leah when he really wanted to be married to Rachel. So he had to work another seven years to get the hand of Rachel in marriage. And then he, after that, he spent another seven years working for Laban. So in total, he was there for 21 years. And while he was out there working, he had the two wives. He had Leah, his first wife, and Rachel, his second wife. And when God saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her, room, opened up her womb, but he left Rachel barren. So again here, we have the same situation in the same family, right? Someone not being able to bear children in their young age, God closing up their womb. But he opened up the womb of Leah, and Leah gave birth to the first four sons of Jacob, to Reuben, Simei, Levi, and Judah. Of course, this didn't make, make Rachel happy at all. In Genesis 30, chapter 1, and when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. You'd think they would have talked back to their grandparents and seen that this is kind of common in the family. Maybe they should have a little bit more trust and faith in God because children will come when it's God's timing. But no, Rachel couldn't do that, she, and Jacob didn't want to listen. So Rachel convinced Jacob to lay with her handmaid, Bilhah. And from this were born Jacob's fifth and sixth sons, Dan and Naphtali. However, 
Then, then Leah noticed that she couldn't get pregnant with any more with any more kids for Jacob. So now she's starting to be the one to get a little jealous. And now she's starting to get a little bit angry. So she you know what she does? She says, well, why don't she convince Jacob to lay with her servant, Ziplah, right? And from Ziplah, we get the seventh and eighth sons of Jacob, Gad and Asher. As the story passes by, the oldest son, Reuben, comes in with some mandrakes, right? Leah's oldest son. Rachel wanted some of those mandrakes. But Leah thought, hey, you already got the love of my husband, right? You got all that, and now you want to take my son's fruit too? But I'll tell you what, if you're willing, I'll trade you some fruit for the husband. And that was a trade that Rachel made. She convinced Jacob to go in with Leah. God reopened Leah's wombs, and that brought up about the ninth and tenth sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and also a daughter named Dinah. After all that, God finally remembered Rachel and opened up her womb, and she bore a son named Joseph. After the birth of Joseph, Jacob finally had the courage. They packed up, and they left Laban. Right, there was a tense situation that went on there, but they, some fighting, they managed to get through it. They left. Some other notable events that happened in the life of Jacob before we pick up where we are in chapter 37. While they were traveling, Dinah, the one and only daughter, was raped by a man named Shechem. And that man turned around and wanted to marry her. However, during this time, two of the oldest sons, Simeon and Levi, devised a plan and told all the men of this city that, you know, we'll give them to you for, we'll give you our sister for a wife, but you all have to get circumcised. And after they agreed to it and they all got circumcised, they snuck into the city and slew every one of them. I only mention this because it shows a little bit of Jacob's character there because Jacob was not one to go in and do any of the correcting to the people. His only concern was that his name might be tarnished in the area. He was more worried about what was going to happen to his reputation in there. After that, God appeared to Jacob, changed his name to Israel. Rachel became pregnant again, and she died while giving birth to her second son, which was named Benjamin. The last thing we'll kind of mention about the life of Jacob here, after the death of Rachel, Reuben went in and laid with his father's concubine. And Israel knew about it. Jacob knew about it. And again, I say that because it just demonstrates his passivity here that we'll talk about a little, in a little bit more detail as a father because he did nothing to correct the wrong that was done there. He just let it happen without correcting his older son. So that kind of brings us up to speed with the family history. That's how we got to Joseph. We'll go through all of the great patriarchs of Israel history. That brings us to chapter 37. And we started getting into Joseph's story. You know, so, so why do you need to know that family history, though? Why is that important, right? Well, first, now we need to know, we know for a fact that Joseph is in the line of Abraham, right? He's part of God's chosen family. And boy, look at that family that he was in. It was chosen by God, and that is not a perfect family at all. That is a far from perfect family. It's just like God to choose the imperfect things of this world in order to accomplish his plan. Sins were passed down in that family from generation to generation, such as, such as having doubts. You know, am I going to have this kid? Is God really going to keep his promises? You know, having multiple children with multiple women, women, scheming, backstabbing, jealousy, envious, it's all rampant in that family. Jacob, he's been shown to be a very passive authority figure. He's not punishing the men of Shechem or his own son for lying with his wife, Right? But also the family history, it also can illustrate how the children kind of repeat the patterns of their parents, 
we're going to see some conniving and some scheming coming up from Jacob's own sons here in just a little bit, right? But also it's going to illustrate how children do not always have to follow the same path as their family. There's a way to get out of it. You can be the one that changes things. You can be the one that takes someone in a new direction. And that's what Joseph's going to be here. Joseph's going to be one that doesn't behave in a way that some of his fathers did, his grandfathers did. He wasn't the conniving, scheming one. He was the upright, walking with God one. So there's our, that's our family history. So now we get into chapter 37, and let's look at the, the current family attitude towards Joseph. First thing I notice here, right? Joseph is, is very, very loved by his father. Chapter 37, verse 3 reads, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And this is kind of the first similarity I get to, too, where it comes to with Jesus, right? Jesus was beloved of the Father. What does it say in Matthew 3.17 after Jesus was baptized? Behold, a low a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So just as Joseph was beloved of Jacob, just as Jesus is the beloved Son of his, his Father, our Father, God. But why was, Joseph, why was Joseph so beloved by Jacob? Well, first, he was born of his old age, right? As, long, as we get older, we kind of shift our priorities in life. We start to see the bigger picture in life. We start to understand what's more important. And if you were to have a kid as you would get older, you would value life a little bit more as you're older. You are a little more wisdom in you, a little more you can share with your child. You can bring him up more. You know more how to raise a child. So when you have a child of your old age, you're, you're naturally just a little bit more excited about it. Not saying you're not excited, like Josh, when you're 21 and you have two children, I'm sure you're great at it. But if you had one when you were 40, maybe be a little bit more excited, right? Because you'd have so much wisdom and experience. Joey doesn't believe that. <laughs> but when you have one of your old age, right, it's going to make you have a little bit more affection towards that child. But not only was this was Joseph one of his parents because it was an old age, it came from his true love, right? The wife that he wanted. He didn't want Leah. He wanted Rachel first, and that's the one he wanted to marry. He didn't want to be tricked. So not only did he have to wait for his love to be his wife, right? As soon as he was his wife, she wasn't able to give him children once she became there. He had to wait through 10 other boys and a girl being born to him by three other ladies before the woman that he loved finally gave him his child. And she wasn't around with him much longer after that. If there's no real good timeline I can find. But while Joseph was still a young boy, his mom passed away, giving birth to his younger brother. So I'm sure every time that, that Jacob looked at Joseph, he saw a little bit of his mother in there. And it just made him, his heart pull towards him even more. Not only because he was old age, but because he was from that woman that he loved so much. And Jacob showed his love openly, right? What does it say there? That he made him a coat of many colors. So wearing colorful clothing at this time, man, that was a big deal. It's not easy to get colorful clothing made. It's expensive. You've got to have the dye. You've got to have someone who knows how to do it. And when I was studying this, I found out that in the original text of this and the way it's written out, it means more than that coat was just colorful, right? It means the design of the coat was a little bit different. It had long sleeves on it. It had long legs on it. it went down to the ankles. It wasn't like your normal tunic, right? They had the short sleeves up by the elbows and cut off at the knees so you could get out there in the fields and you could work and you could move around. No. This was made more like for one of the superior officers. One not made for work, one that was made for supervising. And that appears to be what, what Joseph's job was. 
you know, his brothers took the flock out. Joseph hung back until he was directed by his father. In verse 14 of chapter 37, Jacob tells Joseph, and he says to him, Go, I pray thee, and see whether it be well with the brethren, and bring well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of Villa Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So while the brothers were out taking care of the, shot, taking care of the flock, herding the sheep around, it appears Joseph was sitting at home with his dad waiting for his instructions to go out and just check on him to bring in the good report. Right? So he was definitely loved by his father. Some of that stuff that made him loved by his father had the exact opposite reaction on some of his other family. Right? Those same things, that they made him, made him loathed by his brothers. Look at verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his other brethren, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably unto him. Right? He was the father's favorite. Remember how, this, remember how this family was made up? Right, There's already some internal struggle in there because the moms are already at each other's throat because they're getting jealous and envious with each other. So you know that attitude's got to be passing along to the children. And they got to be seeing this and they got to think, man, we're all older than him. Why is that young one? Why is the baby? Why is he getting spoiled? Why is he getting everything that we deserve? Because you remember, right, there were six, six boys from Leah, two from Bilhah, and two from Ziplah. So there was already intense competition. So human nature can tell you that they were, had to be jealous. They had to be envious of the favorite. Why do they have to have this? Should Jacob have known this, right? Probably should have known better not to play favorites. He can think back in his own life, a lesson he didn't learn, right? He was the favorite of his mother's, Rebecca. While Esau was the favorite of his, of his father's Isaac, they schemed against each other because one had a favorite and wanted to get the blessings. Wouldn't you imagine his children would do the same? When he starts playing favorites, one of his child, shouldn't he know that the other ones are going to be upset? And it wasn't just that, though, that his father loved him more than anything. Then Joseph began to have dreams. Joseph had a couple of dreams that he told to his brothers. In verse 7, Joseph tells his brother, and he says, Behold, we were binding sheaves in a field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obsience to my sheaf. And in verse 9, he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obsience to me. Right? He's telling his brethren, basically here, the way they interpreted the dream, that they were eventually going to one day bow down to Joseph. This made the brother, man, they hated him even worse. In verse 5 it says, Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Right? But these were revelations given to Joseph by God. You know, in my study of this, some people said that he's a little bit maybe too big for his britches here. Maybe he was getting a little too prideful. Maybe Joseph shouldn't have said this to his brothers, right? He already knew that it was tense. But after studying, I don't really believe that, right? These were revelations that were given by God. I believe God wanted him to share the plan. I view it as another similarity with Jesus, right? When Jesus came preaching, I am the way, the truth, the light, no one comes to heaven by me, and made people angry with him. They knew I was going to take it. Joseph was just speaking what God had told him to spoke, what the Father had told him to say in his dreams. And it was true that one day they would all bow down to Joseph. We know the end of the story. Right? So he was just giving them a warning. And, they knew, and God knew how they would take it, and it was to fulfill God's plan. So it was by God's will, not Joseph being some kind of prideful, arrogant young kid that thought that he had to rub this into his brother's face. That's just my thoughts on it. So, 
now we know the history of the family we're dealing with. Right here, how they like to argue with each other, how they like to be competitive, and they're contentious, right? Like, we understand the competition and the jealousy and how it's not a new thing. It's been present for generations. We also now we kind of understand the current family dynamics, how, how Joseph's getting spoiled by his father. His mother's gone, but all the other brethren, they're just they're not real happy with him. So that makes what we read about at the beginning, the actions of his brothers, a little bit more understandable now, does it? Not excusable, definitely not excusable, but it starts to come into a little bit of light here that understanding what they did and why they did what they did in their own minds. So it brings us to the last point, right? The family action and the actually selling of the brother into slavery. First thing that stood out to me in this thing, though, is that it was definitely a premeditated idea. This wasn't something that they just thought up one day. And, and that's kind of how it can happen today, right? Joseph wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just following the direction of his father and going out to check on his brethren. But they had hate in their heart because of their own shortcomings, their own failures, their own attitude, right? And when they saw Joseph coming along the way, that was their first thought. Their first thoughts went to evil, right? We're going to get this boy. Let's show this little dreamer what's up, right? Who does this guy think he is? I've had about enough of him. You know, when we're being good Christians and we're letting our light shine, people can see us from far away too. They know when we're coming. And they can make up their mind before we get there. It doesn't matter how we treat them, how we behave to them, what we're coming to do. When they see us coming, they may premeditate it in their mind. Well, look at that Christian coming at me. Who does he think he is? Right? We need to keep the same attitude as Joseph here. He didn't, he didn't steer away from them. He didn't move on. He still went on to do his job. He was still doing what his father had directed him to do, was going to check on them. So while it was premeditated, it definitely did not affect Joseph. The second thing I noticed in here was that there was one person that objected to this whole thing, but man, it was a real soft-spoken objective. In verse, 20, verse 22, Reuben, he said unto his brothers, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So we get Reuben here saying, hey, hey, throw him into the pit, but don't kill him yet. Just go and throw him in there and just leave him in there. He doesn't really give him any direction, tell him what to do with him. And I kind of question Reuben's motives on this. I'm not exactly sure the Bible doesn't tell us why Reuben did this. But I think Reuben was probably trying to gain some favor back with his father. Him being the firstborn of everyone and seeing Joseph being treated as the firstborn, he was probably going to try to play the hero here. Maybe he was trying to make up for laying with his father's wife after uh, Rebecca had died, or Rachel had died and passed away, right? Who knows what Reuben's motives were here, but he didn't make a full-hearted attempt. He didn't stand up to his brothers and say, no, you're not doing this. He just kind of said, oh, go ahead and do part of it, but don't do it all, right? I doubt that he was convicted to do good because he wasn't adamant about it. He was awfully sly about it. He didn't stop him from putting it in the pit, but he said, I'll come back later and save him. You know, this is the lesson you learn. When you go along with something and you don't stop it, right, you're just as guilty as the people performing the action, right? He had an opportunity here to stop it. He was the oldest. I'm sure he had some weight with his brothers. He could have said, no, guys, we're not doing this today. I'm not going to put him in that pit while I'm here, right? He had the power to stop it, but he did not do it, making him just as guilty as his brothers. Third thing, they fulfilled their evil desires, Right? To fulfill their desires, the first thing they do, they had to convince themselves that what they're doing really isn't that bad. Right? That's how we all 
have to be able to, when we're going to do some, willfully do some sin, we know it's wrong. What do we like to do? We like to justify in our head, say, hey, well, it could be worse. I could be doing something worse here. Right? In verse 26, Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Right? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh, and his brother were content. They're saying, hey, he's our brother. We can't have our blood upon our hands. Right? It won't be that bad. We'll just, we'll just pick him up and we'll sell him into slavery. That's not that bad of a sin. Right? Trying to ease their conscience so that way they don't have to have their blood on their hands. But it's the same thing. People convince themselves, and they'll say, the blood's not in our hands. We didn't kill him. We only sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Sound familiar? Someone getting sold into slavery? Another reflection back to Jesus, right? Jesus being sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. You think Judas has that same remorse? Think Judas tried to convince himself at that time that he wasn't doing anything that bad? He wasn't killing Jesus. He wasn't putting Jesus on the cross. He was just turning him over to the authorities. It's not really his blood wasn't upon his hand, but his conscience wasn't clear. Wasn't. We know that from the story. We know that, that Judas went and hung himself and had his blood scattered his bowels all over the field. Right? And our conscience should not be clear. Just as any of these brother conscience should not be clear just because they didn't commit the most grievous sin that they thought of because they dialed it back. They are just as guilty. Just as, just as Jesus told us in the book of Matthew in chapter 5, Jesus tells, us, tells the people, you have heard it said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry at his brother without cause shall be danger of judgment. That's what Jesus was teaching here. Just the anger, the thoughts, the malice they had in their heart. What they wanted to do to Joseph was just as bad as the act. Pulling it back and making it a little less heinous is not getting them off the hook. You know, and, and people today are just like that. They'll do anything to justify their evil. I'm sure the brothers, they had many, many excuses. Probably said to himself, yeah, he brought it upon himself. He was just being too prideful telling us about those dreams. He knew we didn't want to hear it, but he kept on saying it. But maybe they blamed it on Jacob. Well, if dad just hadn't loved him so much, if dad had just shown us just as much favor as he's shown them, you know, we wouldn't have had to do it. Oh, just a little foreshadowing. They're going to realize later when we get to chapter 41 and they're standing in front of Joseph, not knowing it's him begging for food, their conscience is going to hit them. It's not clearing their conscience in any ways, anything they're telling them here. And it never does. Your sin's eventually going to come back and grab a hold of you. But in anger, we don't have that pulling us down. And in the flesh, we sin and we make bad choices the same way that Joseph's brothers made a bad choice here. And finally, they had to finish the deceit. After they had sold him off into slavery, the next thing they did is they took that coat of many colors, killed one of their goats, washed the coat in it, covered it in the goat blood, took it home, gave it to their dad. And Jacob accepted the news very, very badly. You know, uh, verse 32 says, And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it unto their father, and they said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it, and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without, without doubt rent into pieces. We see he accepted that bad news very, very easily there kind of shocked me that he doesn't say, well, let's go look for him. Let's send a party out. Where did you get this coat at? Let's go search the area. Maybe my son was alive. It's kind of human nature in my mind when I say this, find out that when we get bad news, 
we accept that really, really easily, right? We always kind of have that negative mindset. Kind of Jacob did here, oh, yeah, my son's dead, and this is whatever. You know, you told me, you showed me a little bit of his clothes. That had to be how it is. And he went into mourning. When you get good news, though, we don't seem to react the same way. We sit here in Jacob's life, right? If we go over to verse 45, his brothers are coming back in uh, chapter 45, I mean, of Genesis. And then the brothers come back, and they're going to talk to Jacob. And they say, and they told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. They didn't believe the good news when it came. No, that's our, that's our heart. That's how we want to be, right? We want to accept all the bad stuff that comes in. We don't question it. We just go with it. It has to be true. But when something good happens in our life, we want to doubt it. We don't want to believe the good things God has given us. We need to be more open to those ideas. The last thing I want to say about finishing the deal is that these boys, these young men did this. They showed no remorse for their actions either. It's going to make what we're going to read later in our story later even more remarkable that Joseph could show the grace and the humble and the compassion that he did. Because imagine they told that their father that they, their younger brother had died. I'm guessing Joseph was probably 17, 18. That's when it starts on the story. He's 17 or 18 years old. It's not until Joseph is in his mid-30s that they find out that he's still alive. And that whole time, they keep that secret. The whole time, they don't open up a word to the father. The whole time, not one of those ten brothers thought it prudent to tell their father that there might be a chance that their youngest son could be alive somewhere out in this world, showing what their true motives were and the true evil they had in their heart towards Joseph. So our chapter ends here with Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt. He had been forsaken by his entire family. In their eyes, he was as good as dead. He was, he was never coming back. And what a sad story that would be if that was where it was ended, right? But we know better. We know where this story is going. We know where it's going to end. We know how God is going to take this evil act and turn it into something wonderful, right? Going to, God is going to use this evil to benefit the world and to bring glory to himself. God is going to take Joseph from the, from the pit into the palace. So finally wrapping it up here, what, what kind of hope you can kind of take away as lessons from this, right? Attitudes and actions get passed from generation to generation, right? All of, all of these families we were talking about, they were all chosen by God for generations. They were all godly people. You could call them what we would say today Christian families, right? But they all had their struggles, and they all had their sins, and they all passed that sin along to members of their family. So it's important how we treat and raise our kids. It's important the example that we set for them, not only the bad things, but the good, but the good things as well. Second thing, favoritism in families can lead to jealousy and should be avoided. Hope you can learn that from this message, right? We've seen it a couple times. We saw it when Israel was favoring Joseph and how his brothers reacted to it. And then in Jacob's own life with his mother and his father favoring the two separate sons and how they competed. It never leads to anything good. Third thing, no matter how others are acting, you're responsible for your own behavior and actions. Right? We can learn that from the sons, Jacob. It didn't matter what Jacob was saying or what Joseph was saying. It didn't matter that he was Jacob's favorite, right? They're responsible for their own actions. They're gonna have to pay the price for what they did. There was nothing that Joseph did that brought being thrown in the pit upon himself, right? Fourth thing: anything less than a full rebuke of sinful behavior is an acceptance of such behavior. We learned that from Reuben, right? As I said, he had the power to stop something there. He could have rebuked his brother and said no. But if you don't fully stop the action and the evil that you see going on, 
you're complicit in it, and it's just as if you've done the action. And finally, the final thing you can take out of this, and what you can move forward with, and then we're going to get into, as we move into the next few messages on this series, is that while, yes, attitudes and actions get passed down from generation, from family member to family member, that family cycle can be broken. One doesn't have to be exactly like their family members. They can break the chain. They can create a new standard, right? Joseph was going to be different than his forefathers. He wasn't going to be deceitful. He wasn't going to doubt God. He wasn't going to be looking out always for his best interest. He was going to be different because God was with him. God would be with him throughout his entire life. And come back and listen next week when we talk about, when we talk exactly how about God was with him when he got sold into slavery, got put into prison, and eventually taken all the way up to being second in charge over Egypt because of the wonderful work God did in his life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the story of Joseph. Thank you for giving me time to talk about it. I hope as we move forward in this series that you keep guiding me, Lord, and you keep me filled with the Spirit, and that these lessons will be edifying to those that are listening in the crowd, and that they can apply it to their lives. As we wrap up this Sunday School lesson and we get ready to worship and sing praises to you, Lord, we pray that your Spirit fills the room for the morning service, and that you definitely fill our hearts with praise as it's coming off of our lips, and you guide Pastor in what you want him to preach this morning. We do this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.